Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly, mostly weekly, look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host. Let me do the usual spiel here at the beginning. Please engage with this particular podcast in some way. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, share, all of that helps. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a star rating and a written review, if at all possible. If not, eh, look, I know you're busy, I'm just asking. I always feel weird doing this bit because no one likes it. You don't like listening to it. I don't like saying it. But uh, it works. It is a thing that does help uh, when it's said frequently. So I will continue to do so and just apologize. I mean, look, I get big enough and I won't. But until then, uh, (laughs) until then, we just have to deal with it. So, I've mentioned before, we've seen a pretty big spike in growth for this particular podcast over the last month, last two months, so November and then December. So, I thank you all very, very much for helping us achieve that. That's a lot of you guys. I talk, I do this stuff, but I all I can do is, you know, share uh, my own work. Uh... Any other view, any others that have found and helped share, that's really kind of what's helped helped to drive this. So I thank you very much. Uh, you know, it is the holiday season, so seems appropriate. All right, on the agenda this evening, last night UFC on ESPN plus 57, the UFC's final event for 2021, uh, was a pretty good card. I think we had mentioned on the show last week. It's not the there's not like jump off the page factor for this card, but it was a pretty solid fight night event on paper, and it turned out to be essentially that in practice, so we'll go through that. Also last night, there was boxing. It's usually boxing, but look, I I don't especially like talking about this, but I don't think there's any getting around the reality of Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley, too, and uh, earlier on Friday evening, uh, there was the Arter Better Beef fight, So I, which I covered, actually, with Mark, so uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, so, I, I don't mind talking boxing here on occasion. I don't do a lot of it for a few different reasons, one being this is primarily an MMA podcast, the other being that... While I like boxing the sport, there's, if you talk about it professionally, if you have a podcast about specifically boxing, you can find good stuff every week. That's not really this show, so I tend to limit it to more in you know, some of the bigger fights or stuff that I am very personally interested in. So I'll talk about Naoya in a way. I'll talk about, talk a little bit about Nonito Denaire, uh, the ageless wonder, or you know, or obviously a very big fight. That will draw a little bit of attention and will wind up taking up a little bit of airtime because I feel like discussing it. And, well, Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley 2 happened, and because it was an actual fight, you know, if they'd just been talking on Twitter, I wouldn't care. But they got in the ring and they fought, and, well, I suppose that deserves a bit of discussion, doesn't it? So... That will be on the agenda as well. Uh, That's all I've got at the moment, but something might break while we're recording. Who knows? Uh, The other thing I wanted to do before we get into the show proper is a scheduling update. 
there will not be a regular 411 ground and pound episode on the 26th of well, I record on the 26th. So next week, point being right after Christmas, there will not be an episode. January 2nd, however, I will have something here. I might have something the 26th. That's going to how this week goes is going to kind of play a big role in whether or not that happens, but that so that one I'm leaving a little bit open. Uh, the second, I will have not a preview because there's not a UFC event that Saturday. If there's something big from Bellator or whatnot, I might throw a preview that way, a little bit of one. But I think the fifth, uh, sorry, I think the show on the second will mostly be a review of 2021. I'm not going to do my full, uh, I will not give you my full like year end awards, um, mostly because I'll be, I'm going to be waiting until the actual end of 2021, and there's still, uh, you know, another couple of weeks. And while there's no UFC events, I don't think there's any Bellator. There's other stuff that might happen that might influence how some of those awards go. Not all of them, but some of them. So, uh, I don't think I will be in the process of getting that list kind of finalized and written up when the second one comes around. So, that's going to be a bit more... Uh, freeform, and I'm not going to give away all of my results. Uh, so be on the lookout for that written one. And then the next week when we preview the UFC on ESPN plus 58, the Cater and Chikadze card, I might go over what my actual awards were for 2021. So we'll see about that. And there's some other stuff that's still a little bit in motion there. But that's your programming update for the end of the year. So this is the last episode that I have concretely scheduled for 2021. Weird year, right? You know, uh, it, it felt like January through April or so, we just kind of carried the slag and the malaise of 2020. Once we kind of hit summer, it was a little bit blink and you miss it. You know, the, the last, at least for me, you know, the last five, six months have just kind of blurred by, for better or for worse, I suppose. So... Uh, yeah, that's, again, that's your scheduling update. All right, let's move on to the meat and potatoes. And let's talk about UFC on ESPN plus 57. Uh, we had three fighters miss weight, uh, including one at heavyweight. We'll get to the specifics there in a minute. Uh, first time. First time ever in, the, in UFC history someone's missed at heavyweight. And no, I don't... I don't particularly believe Mark Hunt in this instance when he says that Brock Lesnar missed weight and uh, the world was against him for that. Like, like the UFC did is a is a business and they mistreated Mark Hunt in several respects. I'm I'm certainly not going to pretend that he was that he's his. Um, his view about the UFC is unfounded. I don't think it's unfounded. I've got a bit of a hard time believing that, you know, they went that far out of their way. At about a weight cut for Brock Lesnar in that respect. That that would be a bit much. But uh, some of Hunt's other claims, you know, I, I tend to think are much more meritorious. So, three fighters missed weight. Never good. Um, didn't we lose a fight? Um, yeah, we lost eh, this one. A guy who I don't think he'll be taking the award for, um, uh, 
if you've never read my post, my uh, year-end award reviews, um, since uh, the MMA Zone at 411 shrunk enough to where we couldn't actually do year-end awards proper, uh, I, you know, I just kind of write them up myself. I have one category that is the Ian McCall Memorial. I know he's still alive. Worst luck in MMA award because named after McCall because he had a serious stretch of time when that man had the worst luck imaginable professionally. I mean, just, just the worst. So it's named after him. Uh, at Hani Barcelos, uh, I, you know, I don't think he's going to take it. I might rethink that by the end of the, I might rethink that by, you know, the time I write it up. But he, oof, that man has had some bad luck. Supposed to fight Trevin Jones on this card, uh, which I was looking forward to. A few days out, um, Jones withdrew. He was replaced by a late-notice guy, Victor Henry. Then, early, it was around 9.30 or so, my time, news breaks that, uh, I think Henry tested positive for COVID, so the fight was off. So, Hani Barcelos, uh, again, a top bantamweight, had a long winning streak, but his 2021 had a couple of fights canceled, lost a majority decision to Timur Valiev that maybe should have been a draw, to be candid that was uh it, there's an argument for the draw that's all i'm saying um it's a great fight though that was your fight of the night there was a lot of that was a good fight and then he's had like four fights canceled set like something like that it's oof, it's bad luck a lot of really bad luck has come that guy's way so i i'm not sure it's kind of between him and uh believe it or not leon edwards um, Leon Edwards was the 2020 recipient of that particular award, and like I said, he might repeat. He had a terrible his his luck in 2021 in some respects was just terrible. So we'll again we'll figure that out as we write it up. Uh, so we lost that fight, which sucks. I I, I like Hani Barcelos. I think he's a very good fighter. I like watching him fight. But in your main event, Derek Lewis defeats Chris Dawkins via knockout punches 336 of the first. He is now the sole possessor of the most knockouts in UFC history. I believe he has, what, 13? Double check the number, but... Yeah, yeah, 13. Um, also the most knockouts in UFC heavyweight history. I think he had that already. Uh, but he is atop that particular mountain at the moment, so good for him. Uh the fight itself was going a little bit like I thought it would. Dawkins has had faster hands, and that he landed some pretty decent punches. Lewis has it. I didn't talk about it last week, and that's my bad. Uh, Derek Lewis has a pretty good chin. Uh, he can be hurt, and he can be finished with strikes. That's happened before, but he's a lot. He's he's pretty darn durable, and it's an attribute of his that I think gets overlooked or forgotten about. And as I said, I'm guilty. Of that in this particular case, so my bad. Uh, Dawkins was landing some pretty decent punches, but Dawkins wasn't quite able to draw Lewis into either a lot of movement or. Uh, he wasn't doing. You know what surprised me actually? Now that I think about it, he landed some good leg kicks on Lewis. Lewis is, is uh, susceptible to leg kicks, so that was a good choice. 
I was surprised he didn't go to the body more. Derek Lewis is very susceptible to body work. He's been hurt to the body badly in many different fights. That's a repeating problem for him. I was a little surprised that Dawkins didn't go to that. Most of what he was doing was either leg kick or head hunting. And that didn't quite work out for him. Lewis then got him backing up, got him against the fence. They traded leather in a few different places. And uh, Lewis... Once Lewis has you on the fence and he doesn't have to worry about your movement, he hits hard. I mean, I don't think he hits harder than Francis Ngannou, but that's closer than you might think. Uh, he just landed some good punches in close, hurt Dawkus. They tied up. He landed a knee to the body. They traded punches uh, kind of from the clinch, and he just dropped Dawkus with a right and then finished him off. Uh, Derek Lewis is... Look, I've said this before. His success is a bit of an indictment on the heavyweight division. But he's also not nearly as bad a fighter as uh, you might think. And as I might think at certain times. You know, I, I'm not going to preach to you and say, I told you, no, I picked Dawkins here. I was wrong. Uh, I think you still saw some of the habits that have been exploited when it comes to Lewis present. But you've got to really kind of be on your toes when you deal with him. You can outstrike him, but you have to remain technical. If you get into a, a pocket brawl with him, he he does some good work there. Uh, he made some pretty decent decisions here tactically. And it was a nice change of pace from the guy who you know, tends to be in either back up and then just swing horrible right hands. Uh <laughs> Uh, which is what he does a lot of. Uh, and he didn't quite do as much of that here, so give him some credit for that. Post-fight, he removed his athletic cup and tossed it into the crowd. Uh, apparently he said he wanted to make an NFT out of the image. I I mean, at least it would have to be of the image. <laughs> uh, you know, Lewis is a funny guy. He was joking about how much he, uh, how much he hates five-round fights. Uh, he's not going to take any more of them. And if they get the UFC offers him a title shot, it better be a three-rounder. Uh, Lewis is a personality. You know, uh, it's not hard to see why he has a fan base. I may not necessarily count myself among them, but his appeal is certainly understandable. Uh, pretty big setback for Dawkins, who was... If he'd won here, man, he might have been my breakout. Would he have been my breakout for 2021? Would have featured very prominently. He might still. Eh, I'll have to double check. Again, that list needs some finalizing. And I think I know my top spot. I think I've known my top spot for a bit. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a tough setback. But sometimes when you take a big step up in competition, you wind up, you know, you it's too much too soon. You get set back. You know, he was coming off of a win over Shamil Abdurahimov. Which is nothing to sneeze at, but the difference between Abdurakhimov and Derek Lewis, who was number three in the and and as a contender, the number three contender, um, yeah, that's that's a pretty big that's a pretty big jump, and heavyweight's a little bit like that. You've got you know the top like three to four guys, so you got you know in this case it would be what Francis, Gone, Stipe. Um, Lewis, 
I think I'm forgetting somebody. You know, you've got the, the top guys who just have a pretty decent gulf between them and the next few in terms of talent and overall ability. And that's uh, it's a little bit the story here. You know, Doc is just a bit too much of a step up. But uh, he's a young guy. He can rebound. I, I fully expect him to. Then again, you know, sometime this was not his first loss ever. He, you know, had a mixed career early. He was two and two through his first four fights. Uh, I, I fully expect him to be back. Uh, we'll see if he can learn the appropriate lessons. Uh, if not, well, I, I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if this completely derailed his career. Uh, I put up a tweet asking for questions, so I'm, instead of just having a bit at the end where I answer questions specifically, uh, if any questions that are asked about specific topics that I'm covering in a different context, I'm going to work them in there. So, former contributor to this podcast, before I was even on it, uh, for those of you who don't know, this podcast started, oh geez, uh, 10 years ago, give or take, a little more probably, uh, and was hosted by Mark Radlich. And the original panel featured uh, a contributor to 411 Mania at the time, Scott Kachowski, and he uh, asked me a couple of questions here, the other one I'll get to when I get to that fight that he's asking about, but uh, as far as Derek Lewis, he asks, should the UFC push Derek Lewis towards another title run, or is his one-sided loss to Gon still rec too recent, or should he be considered a gatekeeper for future title contenders? Uh, it's an interesting question. Lewis has had two cracks at the belt. One interim, sure. But two title opportunities. One, he got completely run over and blown out by Daniel Cormier in two rounds. They submitted in the second. Uh, the other, he fought Cyril Gaon, and Gaon comprehensively outclassed him en route to stopping him in the third. It's not that he's completely incapable of winning, uh at the highest level, it's just a harder sell for him, harder job for him, I think. Um, it doesn't help his case that you know, the loss to Gon is a big one. If Gon beats Francis, that's not a given, but that is where I lean. I think he would need at least one more. If Francis wins, look, nobody likes to talk about the first fight between Derek Lewis and Francis and Ganu for good reason. It's terrible. It's one of the worst fights you'll ever see, especially at the UFC level. Was my worst fight of was my second worst fight of that year behind only the uh, abominable amateurish outing from CM Punk and Mike Jackson that the UFC hosted that same calendar year. But Derek Lewis has beaten Francis Ngannou, and that's a potential selling point. So. Some of this is also up, some of that in particular is also up to Lewis. If he doesn't want another crack at the belt, you know, he's the guy that maybe the pressure gets to in certain places. Um, he mentioned that the gone fight in particular, he really felt the pressure. I think with Cormier, the pressure a little bit, but also that was just a catastrophically bad matchup for him. Uh, he, he was never in that fight. Um... I think he could get another title shot. There's a few things in the air. If Gon claims the belt, I think he needs at least one more. Should he just be a gatekeeper for other title contenders? Well, the problem with that 
is that if that guy turns back enough challengers, you have to give them another shot at some point. Unless you have real definitive evidence to the contrary. Uh, you need a you need to have lost to the champion, not at the title level, to the champion more than once. And preferably at least one of those definitively. At that point, you might just be a guy who, you know, is a gatekeeper to the elite level. And Joseph Benavides served that role for Demetrius Johnson for the vast majority of DJ's title reign. Uh, that, that second loss from Benavides, uh, when Johnson knocked him out in the first round, uh, that ruined him. I mean, not as a fighter. He fought again. He won many more times. He wound up fighting for the belt again a couple of times after uh, after Johnson lost it and then Cejudo vacated. You know, he was he fought Davis and Figueroa twice. So it, it's not like his career was ruined, but you lose to the same guy twice, especially if the second one is worse than the first. Like if you if you get knocked out come back and lose a split decision kind of thing, like, you can work with that. It's where, where is it trending? You know, you get knocked out badly in the first round after already losing to them before. That That's kind of it. So I think if Lewis wins one more fight, uh, especially a bigger fight against, you know, someone like Stipe, if he fights Stipe and beats him, you know, that would do it for sure. Uh if Nganu retains the belt, I think Lewis has a shot. I really do. He's got the prior win over him. Yeah, fight sucked. But he still has that win. And he's on a good enough winning streak now. I think you could justify it. If Gon wins, I think Lewis has to beat one other top guy. But Lewis has also beaten a lot of top heavyweights. I mean, he's just been around for a while. He's got a decently busy schedule, so... He's in kind of that position at the moment. I think he's got one more shot at the belt in him if he wants it. If he doesn't want it, you know, that's that's kind of the flip side of that question. If he doesn't want a title shot, uh, you know, no one's going to put a gun to his head and make him do it. At least I hope not. So that was your main event. Over quickly, at least, for heavyweight. So, yay. Co-main event. This fight pained me. Um, Bilal Muhammad defeats Stephen Thompson via unanimous decision, 30-25, 30-26, 30-26. Uh, I was 30-26. I don't object to 30-25. When they were on the feet, Thompson landed pretty good punches. He just could never really keep Bilal Muhammad off of him, and once Muhammad got him clinched up, he was able to fence wrestle him and then get a decent top position and just kind of ride things out past, land damaging blows. Uh, just rinse and repeat. This fight pained me because I think Stephen Thompson is probably done. I don't mean he's going to retire, but that's probably pretty close to. The man's almost 40. He got two cracks at the belt. And to be frank, I scored the second fight between him and Woodley for him. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I was in the minority, or at least as far as the judges were concerned there. Uh, I like Stephen Thompson. He's a nice human being. Uh, I enjoy his style, but at his age, 
You know, a, a few years ago, people were barely even getting him in the positions that now Gilbert Burns and Bilal Muhammad have been able to exploit constantly. Uh, I think he's... I just think he's about done. And it sucks. He's one of those guys who I think will go down as a very, very talented fighter who just unfortunately was never able to get the belt. Uh, good win for Muhammad, who extends his streak. He got on the mic afterward and said he wants to fight Kamaru Usman. Um, I think that would go badly for him. But, look, Usman's not unbeatable. Somebody's going to do it at some point. Uh, and Muhammad's a very good fighter. I just... Muhammad's a weird fighter in the sense that he's got okay punching, but most of what he does is designed to get you into a place where he can fence-wrestle you. And I don't know how he's going to out-wrestle Kamaru Usman. Now, he might, but I, I also think that's a bit of a bridge too far for him at the moment. You've got a few different people in front of you. Uh, you've got Leon Edwards, who... I wouldn't hate if they remade that fight. You know, I, I didn't think an immediate rematch was necessarily called for. Look, it sucks that that ended the way it did. And I don't blame Muhammad for not being able to continue after getting poked in the eye. That's uh, that's on Edwards. Don't foul the guy. But since then, Edwards had the fight with Nate Diaz that he won. He was supposed to fight Jorge Masvidal at UFC 269. That fell apart. Uh, I think now, after Muhammad has... Because he's won two fights since then, or just the one? Two. He beat Damian Maya and Stephen Thompson. You know, Muhammad had a really good 2021, now that I look at it. You know, four fights, three wins, and a no contest. He had a good year. He had a really good year. I think now you could try to remake that fight. And I would be in favor of that, actually. I thought it was a good fight for Edwards to come back to. I mean, Edwards was beating the... Edwards did a number on Muhammad for as long as that fight lasted before the eye poke. I mean, that first round was not close. Uh, so I think maybe you could remake that fight now. Um, and I think it would make more sense at this juncture. So, there's still some moving parts there, but I think that's kind of... I wouldn't mind seeing that, you know? Uh, what else? Other than that, you know, Muhammad's going to fight somebody very, you know, in the you know, very, very near the top. He's going to fight someone like Gilbert Burns or Colby Covington uh, or Leon Edwards again. Like That's the kind of fight that should be next for him. And he's... He's a guy with some good skills, with who has a fairly unspectacular fights, but he wins consistently, and ultimately that's the goal. So he should be doing something pretty big. Thompson, well, he'll probably fight a few more times, but I think he should really consider hanging him up. Um, I don't think he's qu he's just starting to become washed, and this is going downhill. Uh, I saw, I think it was uh, uh, Kaposa on Twitter who said uh, Thompson and Muslim Salikov. You know, there's a few fights like that that are just kind of fun that you could make, but 
I think his time as a title, as a player in the title picture, is is done. Uh, all right, women's strawweight Amanda Lemos defeated Angela Hill via split decision, a 29-28 each way, and a 30-27 for Lemos turned in by I believe it was Derek Cleary. 30-27 for Lemos is a terrible scorecard. There's no way you can give Lemos the second. There's just not. Uh. 20, I was 29-28 Lemos. 29-28 either way, I think, is a perfectly acceptable scorecard. First round, Lemos's power made the difference. She caught Hill with a really nice front kick. Right to the jaw, rocked her, dropped her, but Hill tied up, recovered, got back to the feet, and performed admirably for the rest of the round. A clear round for Lemos. But uh, Hill, after getting rocked like that, maintained her composure and regained herself fairly quickly. Uh, Hill, Hill took the second for me again. The 30-27 card is asinine. Uh, the third is where, where I can't say, you know, I can't argue 29-28 either way as being wrong. Third round was close. Uh, Hill with a little bit more volume, but I thought Lemos's, I thought Lemos landed the better strikes. Um, had a brief takedown. I don't think it scored that much, but something to consider. Uh, I, I just kind of thought Lemos edged out the round. That said, if you went 10-10 or 10-9 Hill, I'm not going to argue with you. It was just a close round. Uh, Angela Hill now, <laughs> they mentioned this on the broadcast. Paul Felder, one of the commentators, I think was why they kind of showed this. Um, Angela Hill now in a tie for the most losses, uh, for the most lost split decisions in the UFC. She is 4-0 and in split decisions. Uh, she's had some bad luck with the judges. Now, look, some of those fights I thought she lost. At least one of them I thought she won. This one, I, said, I scored it for Lemos, but this was just a close fight. Some of them shouldn't have been that close, but this one was. But she's 0-4 along with um, Jorge Masvidal, Clay Guida, I think, was the other one, and Paul Felder. Uh, Felder had a run where it was just, like, split decisions that were either like this, really close, or there were a couple that I thought he straight up got robbed on. Uh, There's at least one that Felder lost that I just, I did not understand. So, again, rough break for Hill in this one. I I don't think she can claim, look, she's going to say robbery. I'm sure other people might. I, I don't think this was a robbery. This was just a close fight. Uh, Lemos is, she's legit. Uh, there, this fight did, I think, expose a few uh, flaws she needs to work on. But, I mean, the woman is undefeated at strawweight. She took a UFC fight on short notice against Leslie Smith and lost. Since then, uh, beat Miranda Granger, Mizuki Inouye, Livia Hanata Souza, Montserrat Ruiz, who she badly knocked out in 30 seconds, and then Angela Hill here. Uh, you know, she's a legitimate strawweight to prospect. Like, pay attention to that woman. She might be, a, she's a contender now, actually, by ranking. So, she's someone to keep your eye on. Uh, bantamweight, Ricky Simone defeated Rafael Austin Sal via knockout punches, 214 of the second. Um, Austin Sal, another guy I think is probably done. He's almost 40, and I think he's 39. 
But not almost 40 in a vague sense. Like, he's almost 40, fighting at bantamweight. Uh, yeah, that's just rough. Another excellent, excellent fighter who happened to be competing at the same time as guys who just kind of had his number. Uh, good stuff from Simone here, actually. His, his wrestling is kind of his bread and butter. Got a pretty good motor. A very good motor, actually. Uh, kind of got Austin Sal backing up and hit him with some right hands. He did a good bit of faking. I, I liked the finishing sequence. He kind of baited uh, Austin Sal with a level change. Slipped off to his own right a little bit and then found a nice right hand kind of over the shoulder. Uh, Simone was ranked at one point, I think when he fought Uriah Faber. <laughs> it's still hilarious to me that he lost that fight, but favorable matchmaking will do that. Uh, he should be ranked again now uh, coming into the new year, so good for him to... He's on a pretty good run, actually. Double check that. Yeah, he's won four in a row. Um, yeah, he lost to Faber, then he lost to Font right afterwards, so, you know, the Faber win, the Faber loss was kind of, yeah, you know, pull up the collar, yeah. The Font loss, you know, Font's gone on to prove himself to be a very, very capable top bantamweight. Uh, but Simone rebounded from that, you know, he's doing pretty good for himself. Lightweight, I love the finish to this one. Mataus Gamrot defeated Carlos Diego Fajaya via TKO, a knee to the body from the back. Uh, two, excuse me, 3.26 of the second. These two had a pretty wild first round. They're both great grapplers. Consequently, neither man really wanted to be on the mat with the other. Any, and Fajaya didn't throw too many takedowns. It was Gamrot who was kind of forcing that. Anytime Gamrot got a takedown, the immediate scrambling from both both men, uh, amazing, amazing stuff here. Some of the sweeps they hit, uh, some of the reversals, the get-ups, just really good stuff. Second round, Fajaya gets, a, both men were tiring a little bit. Fajaya, I think, a little bit more. Gamrot's able to kind of get him down. He goes to wall, rock, wall walk. Gamrot gets to his back as um, Asin Sao's on one knee against the fence. I think he had his left knee... I think he had his left knee up, so his right knee was down as his left shoulder's on the fence. A fairly typical position where you can start building to wall walk as the other guy's behind you. And Gamrot just hauls back with a knee and drives it into his you know, kind of floating ribs from the back. Not near the spine. It was perfectly legal. And Fahea immediately, like, he takes it. He waits half a second, and then Gamrot kind of cinches up the... Uh, the rear waist lock he's got going on. And Fahaya at that point like feels something. He kind of looks at the ref and goes, nope, we're done. And Gamrot then goes for the choke because he doesn't speak English. Or, uh, does he speak English? He does a little bit. Um, I don't think he was doing anything dirty here. You know, it was just the adrenaline of the moment. And the ref, so the ref comes over, the ref sees what Fahaya is saying, you know, I'm done. And then kind of, you know, waves it off. Knees to the body on the ground are a wildly underutilized tool in mixed martial arts as a, in general. Knees to the ribs from this position, I think, are something that more people should look at incorporating. Uh, really nasty knee strike. Uh, good stuff from Gamrot. Gamrot had a setback in his UFC debut, but 3-0 since. Uh, all this year, actually. 
All finishes, too. Uh, Gamrat had a pretty good year. Uh, so I'm just half thinking about, you know, who's going to figure in, you know, breakout or fighter of the year stuff. I've got a... There's a lot of guys who you may not think about until you kind of go through their resumes. And with a slightly more fine-toothed comb. All right, and kicking off the... So, you know, good win for Gamrot. He's he's a problem at lightweight. He, not an insurmountable one, but don't take that guy lightly. Uh, for for Heya, he's been up and down in the UFC. So, not terribly surprised at this. I don't expect him to get released or anything. He's... Well, this is three in a row. I mean, the Daryush fight, A, great fight. That Daryush fight uh, in February. I don't think that'll make top five for fight of the year. That was a darn good fight. Uh, the Gillespie fight was a good fight. He missed weight for that, though. Uh, it was a real... The scrambles in that fight, the Gillespie and, Dar and uh, Fahea fight from May, uh, exceptional stuff. Here, eh, yeah, it's it's not a... It is not a... He's not in a good way. He needs to rebound, but... It's somewhat mitigated by the opposition, right? Benil Daryush on his way towards a potential title shot if he beats Islamakashev. Gregor Gillespie, rising contender. Gamrot, you know, these are tough fighters. So he might, he might get, an, he's probably going to get another shot, but he needs to win that next one. And uh, if he's, if he's able to, it'll be a bit of a step back in competition. So, and kicking off the main card, Cub Swanson defeats Darren Elkins via TKO. Mostly punches. There was a wheel kick at the end that didn't land clean, but uh, 212 of the first. Swanson was just... He was not going to be denied this uh, on this night. Elkins landed a pretty decent right somewhat early, but Elkins is extremely hittable. Look... They said on the broadcast, like, it's not hard to see the appeal of Darren Elkins. Let me sum up to you. The appeal of Darren Elkins. You watch five minutes of that man getting his butt kicked. Then you flip a coin to see if the fight turns into a near-snuff film where he loses, or if he makes the miraculous comeback. This is this is the story of Darren Elkins' fights. Uh, I picked Swanson here pretty easily, because I thought this is what would happen. Swanson just able to find slightly odd angles for his punches, clubbed around the guard, dropped him twice. The wheel kick at the end, again, it didn't really land, like, with the toes, kind of glanced him. Uh, the referee stopping it was, I think, entirely appropriate. Not every guy needs to be knocked out. Not every guy needs to be dropped. You, you don't have to stop them as they're dropping. Right? He was hurt more than once. He was kind of just not there on his feet, not responding the way you wanted to see him respond. You stopped the fight. Uh, entirely appropriate stoppage. The best Cub Swanson has looked in a while. Doubtless helped out by Darren Elkins being, you know, those first, the first round, man, he's just kind of a heavy bag. Then either you get tired and he wakes up, or you find a way to keep making him the heavy bag. Uh, so, good performance out of Swanson. Best in years. Uh, as for the prelims, 
Uh, Gerald Mersharts defeated Dustin Stoltzfus via rear naked choke, 258 of the third. Back and forth fight here. Uh, I thought Mershart had the first. Stoltzfus seemed to be coming on in the second. Uh, I gave him the second and then third. A little bit more back and forth, but Mershart just with a... Mershart had a really slick armbar attempt in the first round from the turtle. So he's in the turtle guard and... Uh, Stoltzfus is kind of in the ride position above him, and he was able to kind of trap one of the arms and really slick armbar attack. I uh, couldn't finish it, but uh, it was nice. It was really nice. Uh, there were a series, in the second round, there was a series of uh, anaconda attempts from Stoltzfus that he couldn't quite finish. Third round was kind of going Stoltzfus's way, but it doesn't take much for Mershart to find an, uh, an opening to slip around, got the back, got the choke. Uh... Solid performance out of Mershart. Um, you know, Mershart's on a three-fight winning streak. You know, they're all finishes, so... He... I'm not even going to say he might be finding his footing. The dude's been fighting forever. I mean, he debuted... He debuted in 2007. And has kept a pretty active schedule since. He's got 48 fights. Uh, I don't know exact. I don't know exactly what he. They might try to make Mud remake. He was supposed to fight somebody else. He was supposed to fight um. Absupion Magomedov. He might try to remake that. I mean, Mershar's just a slightly rugged veteran who's beatable, but is also dangerous. So he's he's a nice guy to have on the roster. All right, next up, heavyweights. Justin Toffa missed weight, weighed 267 pounds. First time, first time at heavyweight. He defeats Harry Hunsucker via head kick knockout, 153 of the first. Um, the head kick itself, it's important when you're going to block a head kick to brace. Hunsucker had both of his hands up. Uh, the kick landed on the forearms. But if the rest of your body isn't properly braced, especially your neck, and with someone who's as strong and, as ha and has, you know, big heavy legs like Toffa does, and I don't say that as a mockery of the man's weight, he's got just big legs. Even if he, even if he had made weight, I'd still say the dude's got tree trunks down there. Uh, you need to brace yourself. If you've got your arms up but they're not properly braced, this is what's going to happen. The kick was blocked, but there was enough force to still drive everything back into the head and cause the knockout. I mean, he hit him with a clean left earlier. But you, you can't just put your... Putting your hands up is not simply the act of holding the appendages in front of your face. There's more that goes into that. And if you're lazy about it, or you're too hurt to do it properly, or you just kind of get caught when you're not thinking about it, this can happen. So, decent win for Toffa, uh, who needed a win, if nothing else, to smooth over the weight miss. Um, and Hunsucker, I mean, I don't think Hunsucker's a UFC caliber fighter. Uh, let's see, next up, women's flyweight, one of our other weight misses. Melissa Gatto defeated Sajara Eubanks via TKO in the third round, a body, 45 seconds of the third round, with a really nice body kick and some follow-up stuff. Eubanks is the one who missed weight. She weighed 127 and a half. Look, I get that the general height 
frame for Sajara Eubanks is more suited to 125 than 135. I do. But she lost, if you'll remember, uh, she was supposed to fight for the belt at one point. Um, yeah, she was supposed to fight um, for the title at the, the vacant title at the uh, Ultimate Fighter 26 finale. She was trying to make weight and went into kidney failure, basically. And she was replaced by Roxanne Modafferi. She was supposed to get a fight against Valentina Shevchenko. Um, and that fell apart. Uh, what happened to that? I forget exactly what caused that. I think there was a... I, I, like I said, I forget. Um, and then... Shevchenko went on to fight for the vacant belt against Yuani and Jacek. Uh, Eubanks fought Roxanne Modafferi on that card. She stayed there. Shevchenko got moved. Um, and Eubanks missed weight for that. Uh, so she, you know, she lost a ti- she lost at least one title fight due to missing weight. She moved up. She was forced up to bantamweight where she did not have a lot of success. Then she comes back to flyweight won her her return bout earlier this year, but missed weight again. So you have one fight canceled because of your weight cut, one missed weight earlier, another missed weight. This woman has made flyweight, I think, as often as she's not. She made weight for her flyweight debut in the UFC. Missed. Yeah, she's two and she's five. She's at the 500 mark. Against the scale at flyweight. She's two and two. Like if that's if that's what you've got as far as you can, your ability to make weight, that ain't good. You shouldn't be batting five hundred against the scale. So you either need to really figure that out or just accept that you've gotta fight at bantamweight and make it work being smaller. And that sucks sometimes. That really does. But those are your options. You can't keep saying I'm going to fight at flyweight, weighing 127, 128 pounds, and then claim your mobility in the division. That's not fair to the people you're fighting who made weight. So my, my rant about the scales being over. Gotta looked pretty good here. Uh... I gave Eubanks the first round, but it was competitive. Second round, uh, Gatto hit a really nice sweep off of her back. There's there's an argument for Gatto taking the first spite being on her back. I'd have to double-check how I scored it. Uh, She had a really nice sweep. She had some good top control. Eubanks gassed a little bit. Uh, Gatto has a pretty good one, too. Her striking isn't the most diverse, but she's got a couple of things that she's able to land consistently, and that's all you need sometimes. The finish was a really nice front kick from Gatto. She'd shown that a few times. But uh, she showed a little bit more of a round kick. And I think that's what Eubanks thought was coming with the hip motion. Because she moved to intercept the kick with a right hand. Now, if someone's throwing a round kick, you can step in, smother it, land a counter right. Unfortunately, well, one, she didn't step. Which I think would have helped her, actually. Two... If that's not around, if that kick is not coming around but coming straight, you're 
multiplying the force going right into the going right into the point of impact. And she leaned forward, throwing a right hand, and got kicked square in the liver with a front kick and just folded in half like a lawn chair. Um, just immediately. Uh, nice, nice finishing stuff from Gatto, who has... Uh, I think she's 2-0 and in the UFC now. Um, I have to double-check that. She's undefeated, but she has a couple of draws. I think they came outside the UFC. If I'm wrong, don't kill me. Uh, she's someone to pay attention to at flyweight. She's kind of long for the division. She's got some good length, especially in the legs. She's good about finding some punches. She's got a good jujitsu game. Uh, the fact that she was able to do as well off of her back against Eubanks as she did should tell you something. Uh, she's someone to pay attention to. At featherweight, Charles Jordan defeated Andre Ewell via unanimous decision, 30-26, Started out okay, but the longer this fight went, the more Jordan came on while Ewell started dropping off. Uh, Good win for Jordan. I don't have a whole lot specific to go into there. Uh, Raquel Pennington defeated Macy Chasson via guillotine choke. I'm not sure. I, I have to double check this because I think the traditional front choke is done without the arm in. The arm was in on this, but the grip was more the 10 finger guillotine grip. So I don't know if you would call that a. I don't know if that needs further distinction or not. Um, Chasson missed weight. For this, they were fighting at featherweight. I give her a little bit of a pass for a very specific reason. She took this fight on very short notice, like 10 days, I think. Uh, and Chasson can get down to bantamweight, but that's that's a process. On 10 days notice, I mean, this was supposed to be Pennington and... Who was it? Um, Julia Avila. And that was going to be at bantamweight. When they brought in Chasson, they agreed to move it to featherweight because of the short notice. And uh, Chasson still couldn't make it on that notice. So, again, I, I'm happy to put an asterisk beside that and go, okay, short notice. Okay. Still something we should pay attention to. Um, decent enough fight. Chasson's power was giving Pennington a few problems. But Pennington is good about just... Clinching you and boring you and uh, making fights kind of ugly until you make a mistake. So, uh, Heavyweight, Dontel Mays defeated Josh Parisian via elbows uh, from the Mounted Crucifix. 326 of the third. Uh, probably the best that Mays has looked in the UFC. He'd gone... I mean, look, he debuted and had to fight Cyril Gone. And got heel hooked in the third round after losing the first two. Like that, that wasn't close. Uh, then he kind of got beat up by Rodrigo Nascimento, and that—that's uh, not great. You know, he got a win over Rocky Martinez, who I don't think is with the UFC anymore. Then he was out for about a year, uh, and looked pretty good here. He's got some power in his hands, but he was able to mix in the wrestling a lot more here. He had some uh, pretty good takedowns, especially once he got to a body lock. Like, he was good about kind of dra uh, dragging you over his hips and off-balancing you. So, uh, nice to see Mays kind of start to find his footing a little bit. 
As for Parisian, um, his only win in the UFC is over Roki Martinez. Uh, he's lost to Parker Porter in his debut. Uh, he's he's not in a good spot. And kicking off the main the entire thing, Jordan Levitt defeated Matt Sales via submission. Another bit of history here for the UFC. Inverted triangle choke, 205 of the second. Now, that position has been used by other fighters before. But usually it's done in service of control while you attack an arm. More specifically, a Kimura is kind of the the general principle, the most common use of that technique from there. Uh, you, you're able to tie things, you're able to tie up the opponent's head and arm with your legs, and then you grab the other arm, and you can Kimura it without too much difficulty. Uh, the defensive options are limited at that point. Um, who got that? I think Olivier Aubin-Mercier got one. Um, Luke Rockhold got one. I forget who he did it to. I want to say Costa Philippou, but I don't think... No, that's not right. Hang on, let me look that up. Um... So this was li- this was not listed as the first. Uh, Tim Boach, that was it. It was Tim Boach. He caught with the the uh, inverted triangle Kimura. Uh, so you've seen some other people use the position, but nobody else has gotten the tap just from the inverted triangle in the UFC. So f- bit of a first for Levitt. I thought Levitt took the first round. Um, Levitt's ground game is quite good. His striking's a little bit a work in progress. And I think his wrestling, his straight takedown game, needs some work. But uh, it's nice to see uh, this kind of uh, submission. Because you don't see them all that often. And it's cool to see, uh, see people who have little tricks like this and know how to use them. Uh, it was actually Matt Sales who got the double leg that led to everything. He kind of got the double leg, but Levitt passed the arm. Uh, one of, I think this would have been Sales' left arm. He was able to kind of get past that, uh, and that opened up the ability to kind of switch his hips around and grab the triangle. Uh, nice stuff out of Levitt, you know, who uh, could needed the you know, his UFC debut. He got a memorable finish when he knocked out Matt Wyman with a slam, but Matt Wyman in 2021, you know, that's not a good gauge of uh, of someone's abilities. Then he suffered the loss in his last fight, but this was a good rebound performance from him. There's, he's still very much a work in progress in some respects, but he's got some skills, so... Uh, nice to see him get the win here, and especially nice to see something kind of fun like an inverted triangle. So, uh, yeah, good for Jordan Levitt. Fun little fight for as long as it lasted. So that was the card. Uh, not really too many duds here. Um, you know, uh, the worst. Pennington and Shasson wasn't all that great uh, until the finish, but that might just be me. Uh, yeah, there, there wasn't really a dud. Um, your post-fight bonuses. Fight of the night went to Amanda Lemos and Angela Hill. I can agree with that. Uh, performances of the night, Cub Swanson and Melissa Gatto. Seems like they stiffed Derek Lewis a little bit there. 
Uh, and they certainly stiffed Jordan Levitt. I absolutely would have given that inverted triangle choke uh, performance bonus, but that's just me. Um, let me see. So, anything else about that? Uh, was it, again, decent way to end the year for the UFC. So, yeah, my big thanks, as usual, to everyone who read before, well, before, during it or after the fact, my full written report with play-by-play -play scoring and whatnot, and gifts of finishes whenever the social media accounts for the UFC or the ESPN MMA Twitter remember to post them. Whoever was doing that was off of their game last night. Just throwing that out there. I don't know if that was you know, just holidays and you didn't have the normal people around or whatnot, but off your game. Usually you get those out a lot quicker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, again, you can f read that over in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Uh, thank you very much. Per usual, I appreciate it. All right. Okay, let's start with Arter Better Beef. Um, I mentioned before, I covered this with Mark Radlich on Friday evening. Uh, for those of you, so this is boxing. Uh, Better Beef retained, I think his WBC title was on the line. He has two of the four belts. He has the WBC and, what is it, the IBF? Don't think he's WBO. Hang on. Um, it's a fast way to look this up. Uh, yeah, he has the WBC and the IBF. Uh, the WBA champion is Dimitri Bivol, and the WBO champion right now is Joe Smith Jr. Uh, light heavyweight, for those of you who are MMA-only guys, light heavyweight in boxing is 175 pounds. Uh... And so Baterbiev, 17-0, 17 knockouts. He defended his belt on Monday. Uh, he ran over... I, I shouldn't say ran over completely, but... Uh, this fight was... Uh, got rough down the stretch. He fought Marcus Brown. Uh, stopped him in the ninth. And... Are they both on the line? They might have both been. Uh, I know the WBC one was, but he might have had both of them up. Uh, neither here nor there in some respects. Uh, Brown did okay in the first couple of rounds when he was able to kind of stick and move, but Betterbeev is a guy who is like a, an avalanche. It starts small, just a couple of rocks trickling down and trickling down, and then they hit more, and they hit more rocks, and it just builds and builds, and just soon enough you're just in this cascade of rocks flowing over you. That's kind of what fighting him's like, uh... They had a clash of heads in, I think it was the third, third or fourth. That opened up a pretty deep cut on Betterbeev's forehead, but wasn't really a fight ender. Uh, it bled the whole rest of the fight, but it was just not in a bad enough spot, not deep enough, not big enough to stop the fight. Just, hey, um, you're just going to bleed as long as that fight goes. So, you know, I'm sure he'll have a very lovely scar when it's all said and done. But he retained those. Again, all finishes for all of his fights. I think he's the best light heavyweight in boxing. Uh, there's other people who might dispute that. Uh, Dimitri Bivol is a very talented fighter. But my money, it's better beef. That his uh, his ring his yeah his ring craft is very good. He's good about backing you towards the fence. 
defense towards the ring, towards the corner. And once he gets you into the pocket, he unloads. Uh, that guy is... That guy is the truth at 175 pounds in boxing. <laughs> now, the other big boxing event from the weekend was the Circus Act. And I don't necessarily mean that unkindly. That was... <laughs> Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley, too. Um, I didn't see every fight on this card. Uh, I tuned out for... There was a an, another celebrity fight on the card between Frank Gore and uh, the former running back for the NFL. And, oh, I can't remember the... I can't remember the other gentleman's name. I feel silly, but let me look that up. was uh, Deron Williams, who was... Yeah, he was a basketball player. Um, that went... That was more of an exhibition. I, I think that was an exhibition, not a professional bout, but um, went to a split decision over four rounds. Uh, I didn't see it, so I'm, I'm kind of cribbing from other people as far as that goes. Um, Amanda Serrano put a pretty serious beating on her opponent, Um Hopefully that sets up Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor, which is two of the three best women in boxing, the other being Clarissa Shields. They've been trying to get Serrano and Taylor together for a while. Uh, it's That's mostly down to political machinations about if they can you know, make that work or not. But Serrano, uh, Serrano, first of all, boxing, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Stop with the two-minute rounds for female boxers. Stop it. There's no reason they can't fight three-minute rounds. None. You need to fix that. It's a problem. It's stupid. No one likes it. And just just stop that. It needs to go. But Serrano's a very good uh, boxer overall. Her defense was a little bit off on this fight. Like She got hit way more than you thought she should, but she busted up her opponent's face. I mean... That was gnarly. Like, that was... She, she... That woman would not be recognizable to her friends if all you showed her was a, them was a picture of her face after that. Oof. Oof. So, Serrano and Taylor would be a... One of the bigger fights you could make on the women's side in boxing right now. I, I think they're two of the best. You know, those two in Clarissa Shields, whatever order you want to put the three of them in, I leave to people who know boxing better than I do. Uh, but... Your main event for that card, and what you're all probably waiting to hear me talk about, Tyron Woodley, Jake Paul 2. Now, how did we arrive here? If you're not familiar with this, let me give you a little bit of background. This was supposed to be Jake Paul and Tommy Fury. Tommy Fury is an undefeated cruiserweight, which is where this fight was contested, which is 200 pounds in boxing. Um, again, undefeated. Uh and Tommy Fury is the younger brother of Tyson Fury, the lineal heavyweight champion and the WBC heavyweight champion. And from where I sit, the best heavyweight in the world. Um, him and Alexander Usyk, if that fight happens, and it should. Uh, you've, If Usyk gets by Joshua again, and I kind of like him to do so, and if Fury gets by Dillian White, which I definitely expect him to do so, uh, Usyk and, jo and Fury is a heck of a fight. I favor Fury, but I kind of 
consider Fury to be the man. At heavyweight. And, uh, Tommy Fury is still a guy trying to develop. They, These two had kind of like thrown barbs at each other, and it was... This was going to be Jake Paul's first real boxing bout against a legitimate boxer. Tommy Fury may not be, you know, Tyson in terms Tyson Fury in terms of overall ability and accolades and whatnot, but he's a professional with a number of fights under his belt and certainly not a washed-up MMA guy, which is kind of, you know, what Jake Paul had made his name fighting against. And he beat Nate Robinson, uh, then you know, then Askren and now Woodley. So, we were supposed to get that fight. Fury pulls out with, uh, I think he had some kind of infection related to a rib injury, is, is what he said, a bacterial infection. Um, and look, if true, I'm not begrudging the man for pulling out of the fight. Doing anything with rib injuries sucks in general. If you get a compounding issue on top of that, I'd rather you just fix it medically than do something stupid. So, it sucks. But on short notice, they turned to Tyron Woodley, and Woodley said, Sure. I will fight you again. Uh, this fight, uh, for the, uh, in case you forgot, um, Jake Paul defeated Tyron Woodley via split decision a little earlier this year. No way and or reason to score that fight for Tyron Woodley, for the record. None. That should not have been split at all. Uh... But we get the rematch here, and the first two to three rounds were low-level, but at least watchable, I thought. Call it the first two and a half. Rounds three, four, and five were terrible. Um, Steve Farhood, who was doing the unofficial scoring for the broadcast, for the Showtime pay-per-view broadcast... You know, it comes in after each round and says, you know, I scored it for so-and-so, here's why, and whatnot. Said of the fourth round, I scored it for Jake Paul, but I feel dirty doing so because nothing happened. <laughs> so much clinching. Oh, it's embarrassing. Um, a lot of people who are not familiar with Tyron Woodley heard when Tyron Woodley said... I learned from the last fight. You know, I was just kind of getting my feet wet in boxing. Going to be different this time. Going to be a bit more aggressive. Going to let my hands go. And for some reason, now for some reason, I know why, a bunch of people believed him. Ladies and gentlemen, if you believed Tyron Woodley about fixing the problems and letting his hands go and not being passive, any of us in the MMA sphere... We've heard that song and dance from Tyron Woodley for how many years now? If you bought that, I have beachfront property in Omaha, Nebraska to sell you. I mean, that's that's just what that is, man. That's what Woodley says every time, and it's never true. He's just washed. There's just not any getting around that reality. So we got some, we got a lot of clinching here. Um... Not a lot. I can accept the first thing like said. The first, you know, two-ish rounds. I can accept that as two people who are not very good boxers going out and trying to box. And that's what we have here. You know, you got Woodley, who's 0-1, 
against Paul, who's 3-0. and Like, these, these aren't very good boxers. So, I can accept the first couple of rounds being not very good boxing, but, eh, you know, not, not offensively bad. Then it degenerates into throwing body shots as you step into clinch, and then it's turning and breaking. There was a... Um, there was an elbow from Tyron, accidental, uh, that cut open Jake Paul in the third, I want to say. Might have been the... Um, it wasn't the fourth, because then something would have happened. Uh, I think it was the third. Uh, not in a spot that would necessarily stop the fight at all. It was uh, unpleasant, because it was kind of... It was over the right... Not over the right eyebrow, you know, right over it, but up higher on the forehead. But it would kind of leak down, and it was... Uh, as long as it kept bleeding, it would keep being a problem uh, for his vision on the right side. Uh, but the fight was terrible. Uh, you know, the uh, rounds, you know, three, four, five, just... Certainly the end of three, like the the as three wound to a close, just not good, sloppy boxing, lot of clinching from both men, <laughs> just just terrible. Round six, uh, Jake Paul salvages his buzz because I'm I'm gonna say this. If this fight had continued the way it was going for two more rounds, one, Jake Paul wins a wide decision, or he should. I gave Woodley the... I gave Woodley the third round. I think it was the third. I was kind of like loosely scoring it as I was watching. And I was I was watching partially to harass Mark Radulich about it, because I can, and partially because I figured I should talk about it here. Um, otherwise, I would not have watched this. But if that fight continues the way it was going, Paul probably wins a decision, but the fight down the stretch is so bad, he has he would have actively damaged his ability to sell himself as, as being part of the sell job for a pay-per-view. It was that bad. But in the sixth round, Paul, who's... I want to give Paul credit for a couple of things here, which is going to sound weird, but... Hear me out, because I, I know people just hate that guy. And I'm not here to tell you to change your position on the man at all, but hear me out. He was doing some decent body work. Not great, but he wasn't just headhunting, and he wasn't just jabbing to the body. He threw some decent rights to the body as well. So, I, and I bring that up because it sets up what happens here in the finish. Paul kind of, again, he's been throwing rights to the body. He starts jabbing a little bit to the body in the sixth. Uh, he's done it a little bit before, but he commits a little bit more to it throughout rounds five and six. Then he feints a body jab, and Tyron Woodley's lead hand drops to parry it. Uh, to do, I don't know, depending on the terminology you want to use. That's, you know, a circle parry, or a... What would I call that? 
a little bit like a if you do the if you do traditional karate, you know, a little bit like a downward block, but you more with the more with the kind of swatting with the palm. So whatever you want to call it, he, he goes to do that. Okay, jab's coming into my body. I'm gonna parry it to the side. It's a valid response. Jake Paul sees this. Now, what follows is a fairly rudimentary setup in boxing, but it works. Not just at the rudimentary level, it works at the highest level. I said, if you want an example of this from MMA, I'm, I'll give you one here. Junior Dos Santos, the former UFC heavyweight champion, threw a lot of body jabs. Now, why would he do that? Because the motion with your shoulders when you jab to the body is the same as when you start to throw an overhand right. So Junior, who had serious punching power, would jab to the body, jab to the body, and after a little bit, when you start thinking that's what's coming when his shoulders dip in this same fashion, your guard kind of drops a little bit. You look to parry, you look to block, you look to deflect, whatever. Or you look to evade, and sometimes by evading, you go away from the jab and into the power hand. You drop the shoulders, and instead of throwing the jab to the body, you throw the overhand right, and in theory, their lead hand and shoulder drops to try and deflect a jab that isn't coming to the body and leaves you a clear punching lane for your right hand to the head. Now, as I mentioned, this is a fundamental, fairly basic, and I don't mean that I don't mean that negatively. Setup in boxing, kickboxing, MMA, it's a fairly simple, useful setup. Look, a one-two is simple, right? Throw the jab, you throw the cross. Doing it, but you don't see the most advanced fighters in the world abandon it because it's simple and basic. You have to execute the basics. And what? that's what Jake Paul does here. He faints that jab to the body to get a read. He faints it a second time, and when Woodley bites on it a second time the exact same way he did the first time, Paul takes a little bit of a half step to his right to make sure he's got a clean punching lane and lands an overhand right that absolutely ends Tyron Woodley. He, This lands, and there's clips of it out there on the internet. You can see all the sweat fly off of Tyron's head. Boom! Tyron Woodley, then, like a... I don't know if I should reference that, but I'm going to. Like Apollo Creed after Ivan Drago leveled the boom, falls almost in slow motion, face forward, thuds to the canvas, out cold. I'm going to say this again. This fight was not good. Even the most, even the best parts of this fight sucked. If you're, if you're a fan of boxing, if you've seen low-level boxing as a curiosity or as, uh, you know, tape study for a potential opponent, if you're trying to break in or you're a hobbyist even, and you just kind of observe you know, the low, the low-level stuff, you've seen this. You've seen this better. And then it got really bad which you've also seen if you've seen low-level boxing. <laughs> and it just happened to end with an incredibly memorable knockout that I'm sure, I am sure that went viral. Maybe not maybe not blown up, blown up, but 
that's the nature of the culture at the moment. That little, you know, 15 second clip, 15 to 20 seconds, there's a lot of people that are only going to remember that instead of everything bad that happened before it. Uh, it's a Jake Paul saved his future as a main event, as a drawing personality and talent with that punch. And it was a heck of a punch. Look, you can say whatever you want about Jake Paul. And there's a lot you can say, and there's a lot that you can say legitimately. I am not here to sell you on him as a human being. There are a couple of things about him, however, that I think need to be reconciled. One, that man has work ethic. You may still find him an obnoxious human being. You may not, you may wish for harm to come to him. I, I, I am not here to tell you he is an upstanding member of society, a pillar of his community, and someone whom we should aspire to be like. I am not saying that at all. I am saying, and I mean this, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into what he does as a YouTube personality and now learning to box. Now, look, I've said this before about boxing in particular, and this is true of any, this is true of any combat sport. If you pick it up after the age of 20, certainly after the age of 20, but realistically after the age of about 18, 19, if that's when you start, you are not going to have a career. You are not going to have a real competitive life in any sort of meaningful way. You have a potentially very valuable hobby. Like I said, that's not nothing. It, and look, this is true of jiu-jitsu, too, unless you know, people forget this. You pick up jiu-jitsu in your 30s, in your late, you know, mid to late 20s, you might compete. Most jiu-jitsu schools encourage you to do so. You might medal in certain tournaments or uh, at certain levels. But you are not going to be Gordon Ryan. You know how long Gordon Ryan's been grappling? If you started jiu-jitsu in your, say, you know, 21, that's when you started. Understand that Gordon Ryan started when he was, you know, started six years or so before you, if not more. Started. You are always going to be six years behind that guy. Just always. This is true of boxing. I said this about Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder picked up boxing at 19. The fact that that man was as successful as he was with that, with all that under consideration, he is an aberration. That man went to the Olympics and won a bronze medal on pure punching power. I guarantee you there were people he boxed against at the Olympics at the amateur level, to say nothing of the professional level, that had been boxing at least... So that started boxing 10 years before he did. That guy walked into a boxing gym at 19, and there were people in that gym, I guarantee it, who started when they were 7, 8, 9. I would guarantee, certainly 10. So he's behind an insurmountable 8-ball in terms of his development just because of the time. You start boxing in your 20s, 
He said, you've got a good hobby for the most of us. And it'll get you fit. Uh, it can help build your confidence. Like there's, there's a lot of value to it. I'm not here to say, and if you out there are listening, if you're in your you know 20s or 30s, I'm not saying don't learn to box. Not saying that at all. I'm saying don't try to be a professional. Because you're going to walk into that gym and understand something. You know, if I did, I'm 36. If I went to a boxing gym, and there's one not too terribly far from me, about 20, 30 minute drive, so not, not far at all, really. If I walked into that gym and said, sign me up for classes, I'm going to be in class probably with people who have been boxing for half as long as I've been alive. There are going to be people in there who started when they were 18. So again, anyone my age, anyone about my age, is going to have, you know, maybe even 20 years of already doing this. And I, you are never going to overcome that gap. Never. Unless there is something bizarrely freakish about you. You're just not going to overcome it. Point being. Jake Paul started boxing in his 20s. He's never going to be a world-class boxer. The the time differential, again, you're starting just too far back at too much of a deficit to ever really fight, to ever really be a world-class boxer. It takes... At a bare minimum, like you spend three to four years just getting the basics down. Just getting your legs in condition to not fall apart. Getting your lungs in condition. Learning how to not... Learning how to throw a jab. You know, you take that first three to four years and you don't really have a professional fight most of the time. Now, again, this will change a little bit depending on circumstances, certain bits of individual talent. But, you know, you start... You go to a boxing gym at, you know, 8, 9, 10... You don't, you you spar, certainly, and in the amateur system you might, uh, I mean, and when you're that young it's a little bit different too, but you, know, you, you go to competition, maybe, but that first several years is devoted to drilling responses and patterns into you, so that by the time you're 15, 16, you, know, you can't, your legs are in condition, you can jab, you can move, slip, dodge, weave, know how to pivot, uh, know how to set up your punches. Like, that's all, that all takes time and it takes repetitions. And Jake Paul is just never going to overcome that, you know, that differential as far as the world-class boxers go. But, watch what he does and divorce yourself from the fact that you find him to be a noxious troll. I need you to do that if we're going to be serious about this. The level of skill that he has achieved is not... You don't do that if you don't train. That man is training. And that's not easy. I say this about both the Paul brothers. You may hate them. Like I, I am not... I'm, last time I'm going to say this, I promise. I'm not here to tell you they're good people. I am here to tell you that what they do is hard. And that their success is not accidental. 
So there's that. And the other thing that I think is true of Jake Paul that we can say at this point, dude can thump. <laughs> uh, he flatlined Tyron Woodley. Look, you knock out Nate Robinson as he's charging forward with his chin up in the air. Okay. That's not the best display of punching power. Knocking out old Ben Askren, the way he did it indicated a bit of power, but Askren was pretty washed at that point. And it's not to say Tyron Woodley isn't washed now. But if you don't mind, I'm going to say something here that I think is true. I'm going to double-check Woodley real fast, but... That was the... That was the first time Tyron Woodley has been stopped with strikes since he fought Nate Marquardt in 2012. He lost since then, lost a split decision to Jake Shields, a unanimous decision to Rory McDonald, went on his title run, lost to Usman decision, lost to Burns decision, had the rib injury against Covington, and yet yeah, Luke hurt him on the feet, hurt him. But he didn't finish him there. Finished him with a choke. This is the first time someone has really knocked him out. In all, eh, what, nine and a half years? Like, that says something about Jake Paul's punching power. And I... That just kind of deserves to be acknowledged, especially if you're going to have to fight that guy. Uh, whoever fights him next. Like, he's, his technique is still rudimentary in a lot of respects. And I'm not saying I'm going to pick him to win a lot of fights. But Tyron Woodley fought some guys who, re who have some serious power. Right? Kamaru Usman can hit really hard. I don't think that... He wasn't on a knockout streak when they fought, but even then, he's, he still had power. Gilbert Burns hits pretty darn hard. And both of them were able to buzz him, but nobody really... Uh, you know, they shut him down as much as hurt him, right? They Nobody really... He and Luke went to war for as long as they did, but they both got hurt in that in those exchanges. And, as I mentioned, that fight with Luke, he hurts him on the feet, but that's not how he chose to finish him. Jake Paul put that guy to sleep. Whatever else you want to say about Jake Paul, that dude, can, he's got power. He really does. So, I don't know what's next for Jake Paul. They might just try to remake the Tommy Fury fight. Um, both Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal were in attendance for this fight. They, I think they left before the main event. Uh, I know Nate did. Look, Nate's UFC contract just got extended by another, like, six months after they offered... The UFC contracts have a weird stipulation in them that I'm not sure would hold up to legal scrutiny, but no one's really challenged it. Um, they have to offer you so many fights a year. But, if they offer you a fight and you turn it down, they can then extend your current contract another, again, I think six to eight or six to nine months um, off of that. And Diaz, I think Diaz turned down the Kamzat Shemaev fight. 
Now, that doesn't mean Diaz is afraid of Kamzat. That's a terrible stylistic matchup for him, from my opinion. It might have been more injury or date-related. You know, the, there's a lot of minutia there that we'll just never know the details of. But he's got one fight left on his UFC deal. If Nate can either fight that out fairly quickly or get out of his contract some other way, I'm not saying you have to like it. I'm not saying I like it. I don't. But are we going to pretend that Nate Diaz versus Jake Paul in a boxing match doesn't sell? Are we going to pretend that? that it, look, man, I may, I may not like it. I don't. I, I don't enjoy these fights. I laughed when... I'm going to say this. When Paul knocked Woodley out, I had a good laugh. I needed that laugh, man. That was hilarious for a variety of reasons. Some of which are just my personality. Uh, <laughs> I still laugh thinking about it, man. I have a good chuckle about that one. But... Look, Nate Diaz, Jake Paul, boxing. Yeah, that's going to sell. That's sell a lot. I, I just, and I think it's foolish to pretend otherwise. So, they might remake the Fury fight, or the Tommy Fury fight. They might see what they can do with Nate Diaz. Um, who knows? Uh, is it, the only thing I know is that Jake Paul salvaged his, again, his ability to sell a fight with that knockout and in fa whatever whatever else you want to say that's a really nice knockout like terrible fight absolutely garbage fight it was a really really nice knockout uh, i mentioned uh, scott kachowski has a question he had a question related to this fight uh, a bit more humorous one than the previous one uh, should Woodley just slink away and avoid the media for the remainder of his life, or is it worth him to try and explain losing to a YouTuber twice in a row? <laughs> um, I don't think he's going to avoid the media for the rest of his life, but... Uh, the number of people who just can't stand Jake Paul, for obvious and understandable reasons in some respects, and decided that Okay, Tyron, this is the horse we're going to back. Like, guys, especially the MMA fans, right? Especially the MMA fans. I'm just going to be honest with all of you. Um, the, I don't even know what to call it here. It, this amuses me to no end because... I've been here for a while. I saw all of you ragging on that guy for years. Years. You uh, you called him boring. I called him boring at times. Look, here's the only thing I want to say about this. and th There's a reason I'm excluding myself from some of this. We all called him boring for a long time because, let's face it, kind of was. We all said you're a bit washed when he started repeating the same lines over and over and over again and never delivering. We all 
kind of you know, cringed, and I'm not using that as a verb, or uh, as an adjective. You know, I'm not describing something as cringeworthy. When Nate, when he won, I forget which title, I forget which fight it was. There was one fight where he won. It was either right after he won the belt, when he fought Robbie Lawler, or I think that was it, actually. He beats Robbie Lawler and says, I want to fight Nick Diaz. We all collectively cringed, and I mean that is the physical reaction. Like, and this we all understood Tyron Woodley, in some respects, and a lot of us, and at times I was guilty of this. We were unfairly critical of the man because we didn't enjoy his style, and we he didn't go out of his way to kind of endear himself to fans, and he's not obliged to do that. All I'm saying about that, and this goes for him and anyone else, if you choose to be indifferent or antagonistic to the fans, one, look, some fans suck. This is true of MMA, it's true of any sport, it's true of any movie, it's true of any comic book franchise, film franchise, whatever. Some of them suck. I'm not saying you need to suck up to these people if you're Tyron Woodley. I'm not saying you need to do that. I am saying, if you're going to be a bit antagonistic, don't be surprised when that is returned to you. Don't go, you know, you all suck and you don't buy my fights because you're racist. And then then be surprised when people say, you know, calling yourself the greatest welterweight of all time is a bit of a stretch. I mean, my opinion of Woodley, he's probably the third best welterweight in UFC history. You've got George and you've got Usman, and they're kind of vying between one and two right now, and that's a close debate at this point. Just talking welterweight. Who's who's right behind them? Right? Who's the next best welterweight behind them? Welterweight champion. I look. If you want to say Matt Hughes because of his longevity, I suppose. Like I don't. I just don't. I don't agree. I'm not saying there's no argument to be made. I disagree. I think Woodley is the next guy down on that list. And he's no worse than the fourth. That guy just has a better record of accomplishment before he was champion and during his title reign than every other welterweight champion. If you want to put him behind Hughes, even for the sake of argument, who else is there? You you got Robbie Lawler, who had some all-time classic fights, but... Maybe shouldn't have won the fight that got him the belt, and certainly I thought he lost to Carlos Condit. Yeah, his fight with Condit is an all-time classic. His fight with McDonald's an all-time classic. This is not about quality of fights. It's about quality of title reign. And those are not the same thing. Jeez, uh, who's after that? Um, what, Matt Serra? BJ Penn? Uh, Carlos Newton? Pat Militich? You really want to you want to stand there and try and pretend that any of those guys had, were better champions than Woodley. I, you can enjoy that bit of denial, I suppose. But we all were a little bit tired of the guy when he when the UFC let him go. He was a little bit washed, and and we all knew it. And a lot of you, this is where I'm going to separate. A lot of you people out there, well, you fans, this is not me lecturing you. This is a, this is just a recitation of 
uh, the events that transpired, didn't like him. You had reason, some of them perfectly valid reasons to not be a fan of the guys. I mean, I'm not here to police your fandom. You don't want to be a fan of Tyron Woodley? I don't consider myself a fan of Tyron Woodley. I never did. I tried to be sober and fair in my assessment. As soon as he signs to fight Jake Paul, y'all hitch your horse to that wagon. And it was just an odd choice to try and turn that corner and then ignore everything you had said negatively about him, some of which was fair, just because you can't stand the guy he's across the ring from. And it badly distorted the perceptions of reality that a lot of people have. So, uh, should Woodley avoid the media for the rest of his life? I don't know. I mean, he's not a great interview. <laughs> uh, or try to explain lo- losing to Jake Paul twice in a row. Look, you want to explain this losses to Jake Paul twice in a row? I can, he, I can tell him what to say. I don't think he'll agree with me. And I, I, you might have to change the messaging a little bit. But here's the reality. He, Tyron Woodley, with zero professional boxing experience, fought a better boxer in a boxing match. Look, if they were to have a wrestling match, who do you think would win? I would favor Tyron Woodley. If they were to have an MMA fight, who would win? Um, okay, at this point... Maybe you could argue Jake Paul in that context. I hate to say it, but maybe. But he stepped into a highly specialized skill set, fight with a highly specialized skill set, against someone who'd been doing that longer and was better at it than him. Yeah, Jake Paul's a, a YouTuber. And bear in mind, that's not an easy profession. I'm, I am not here to say that that's not a real job. You make, If you're to able to succeed financially in the YouTube marketplace, I mean, good Lord, you don't get a more crowded marketplace than YouTube. Everybody can do that. There's no barrier to entry. You succeed in that space? I mean, bravo, man. Especially consistently. That's hard work. That is not easy. But he's been taking his boxing seriously. And that, the result reinforced that. I'm not saying Tyron Woodley didn't take boxing seriously, but Woodley's also a 40-year-old man. Give her, he's almost 40, right? We'll check that. Yeah, he's 39. He'll be 40 in April. He's fighting a guy half his age almost. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to look up how old Jake Paul is. I don't want that in my searches. I don't want that to screw me up. <laughs> to, screw, <laughs> to screw up some stuff. I'm just not going to do it. But you're fighting a guy, look, you know, 15, 16 years younger than you, something like that. I have to, uh, who's been doing what the activity you're doing longer. And you... Even if Woodley weren't almost 40, think of all the years and miles on that guy. He didn't pluck... He did not... Let me put it this way. Saying he lost to a YouTuber is correct in one sense. In another sense, it's grossly misleading. 
He did not go to... Look, if Tyron Woodley rolls up to... I don't know. Who's a famous YouTuber? Uh, I don't know famous YouTubers. Um, okay. I'm going to Google famous, most successful YouTubers. I'm going to pick someone at random from this list. Okay, most successful YouTube channels. Um... Let me see who we might have here. Uh, here's an individual. Okay, PewDiePie. There we go. If Jake Paul, if Tyron Woodley rolled up to PewDiePie's house, they threw on boxing gloves and he got knocked out there, that's not the same as losing to Jake Paul under these circumstances. It's just, there's just context missing from that sentiment as far as that goes. Um... As far as what he does next, he indicated he might want to move back to MMA. I don't know, maybe he can get a rematch with the raccoon. Um, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you think I just made a racist joke, I didn't. There's a somewhat infamous clip of Tyron Woodley who was uh, in, uh, a small had a bit role in a movie. And he and a raccoon have an altercation, his character. You can, If you want to see it, look it up. I think if you just Google Tyron Woodley Raccoon, it'll show up. Um, so when I say maybe you can get a rematch with the Raccoon, I'm referencing that movie. Uh, oh, was this such a stupid scene, too. Oh, it's so stupid. Anyway. Uh, I don't know. Look, the guy's been washed for a few years at this point. Um... Somebody's gonna try, he might try, somebody might try to squeeze a few more fights out of him, but I think he really should be looking at what he wants to do with the next chapter of his life because combat sports is not something he should be actively pursuing at this point. Uh, all right, that is I spent a lot more time talking about that than I wanted to. Uh, but, well, I suppose it warranted a bit of discussion. Okay. Let me check Twitter and see if anything crazy is broken. If not, we will get out of here. Uh, well, apparently Chael Sonnen was hit with a bunch of battery citations in Las Vegas. Um, don't know how I didn't see that when it broke earlier today, but, well... I mean, I don't like talking about that kind of stuff, so I, I don't know enough to say other than he was cited. Uh, I think there's a lot that's still ongoing about that, but it ain't good for Chael. It is not good for Chael Sonnen. All right, let's get into plugs, and boy, I went on a lot longer than I thought I was going to. All right, plugs. Okay, I had most of last week off, which was kind of a nice change of pace, if I'm being honest. Um, but this week, however, uh, not not so much. A lot of stuff. A couple of important things this week. First of all, Monday, Damn You Hollywood will be myself and Mark Radulich. And we were going to have Alexis Haina on. I think it's just... I actually think it's just me and Mark now. Uh, we'll be talking about Guillermo del Toro's dark sort of psychological thriller morality tale... Uh, Nightmare Alley, starring Bradley Cooper, among others. Uh, 
Uh, I have seen that. That was a that was an experience. So Monday, Mark and I will review that. Tuesday, myself. Who else is on this one? Uh, myself, Mark Radlich, and I, uh, Gavin Napier, actually, uh, formerly of the Casual Heroes, will be on Damn You Hollywood to discuss Spider-Man No Way Home. I have not seen that yet, but I will see it, of course, before I review it. Um, you know, it... I, this is going to sound weird if you've seen Nightmare Alley, and I would encourage you to do so if you're a fan of dark, intricate... Um, kind of thought-provoking films. That, that's what Nightmare Alley is. It's not uh, it's not full-on Oscar bait, but it's more it is more an awards movie than a blockbuster-style movie, and sadly, we have we're, there's a growing rift between those two genres. A different... A discussion for another time. Uh, I would encourage you to watch it. Uh, I came out of that movie, and while it is heavy and has a very um dark ending in many respects. I was a little bit happy coming out of it, and it took me a minute to realize why, and it was the same reason I was happy after watching Dune. It was nice to watch a movie that was not made for children. And this is a revelation that I had... Someone else said it, and I... I think it's correct. The MCU movies are made for kids. Now, you can be an adult and still enjoy them. I am not shaming you. I am not insulting you if you do. But let's be abundantly clear about who those movies are aimed at. Yeah? And watching a movie that is very much not made for kids was a refreshing experience. Uh, but anyway, Spider-Man No Way Home, Tuesday... Should be an interesting discussion. Uh, I said I haven't seen it, so I might enjoy it. I might be the old man yelling at clouds. Look, I was the lone guy willing to die on the hill saying Thor Ragnarok sucked. My saving grace about that take? More people agreed with me after they saw it a second time than that just after the first. Now, I I don't... Uh, so, we'll see how I feel about No Way Home. You're going to get my honest opinion one way or the other. If you're interested in those... Uh, those will be over on the W2M network, so if you just plug Damn You Hollywood into whatever your podcast uh, search platform of choice is, you should be able to find them. So if you want my thoughts on movies, they're over there. Um, not on that triple feature. I think that's all I have next week for podcasting. Um, let's see. Oh, the only other thing I did last week was, the again, the watch-along for Arter Better Beef and Marcus Brown. So if you're interested in Mark and I doing that live, you can find that. Uh, also next week, my usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. Actually not. Um, sorry. So AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. WWE SmackDown on Friday. Yes, there will be one Christmas Eve because... Uh, reasons. Uh, I don't think there's an MLW event on Thursday. I think they're waiting for the Azteca stuff to kick off in January. So they might ha I think they have a couple of weeks off. So, those two, and then no UFC event on Saturday. Of course, Saturday is, in fact, Christmas. But, yeah, that's it. This is the last episode of the Ground and Pound show proper for the year. So, I will see you all in 2022. I hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays for whatever else you happen to celebrate. 
I want to thank you all again very, very much for all the support and your patronage of the show. Please keep it up. I am happy to see this thing start growing again. Uh, it means the world to me. I've done this for a long time, and I do it because I enjoy it more than anything else, but seeing it grow, um, yeah, it means a lot. Uh, not, I, I sometimes you know, wondered, you know, was it worth it to keep plugging at this? And uh, I, I'm not under any delusions about, you know, rivaling the great podcast in the space, but I seeing it grow a bit just is a fulfilling experience. So I thank you all again. Stay safe out there. And as usual, continue to be well, be safe and behave.